This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. We have folks tuning into this call from Philadelphia, Chicago, the Bronx, Brazil, Cape Town, South Africa, California, London, Portland, Oregon, Germany, Minneapolis, and Florida, among other places around the world. Just want to thank you again so much for being here. My name is Nisha Bolsey. I'm a writer and an editor at Haymarket Books, and I'm honored to be hosting today's conversation. I'm coming to you from the occupied lands of the Three Fires Confederacy, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi Nations. On behalf of everyone involved in this event, we want to acknowledge the original keepers of the lands that we're on and the indigenous peoples living here today as we stand in solidarity with their ongoing struggle for sovereignty and for self-determination. Um, and now it's my pleasure to bring in Dr. Benjamin and Dr. Roberts. Dr. Ruha Benjamin is Associate Professor of African-American Studies at Princeton University and author of the award-winning book, Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code, as well as editor of Captivating Technology. She is also the founder of the Just Data Lab, which brings together students, activists, artists, and educators to develop a critical and creative approach to data justice. Dr. Dorothy Roberts is a university professor at University of Pennsylvania with joint appointments in the law school and the departments of Africana Studies and Sociology. She is also the founding director of the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. Her books include Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century, Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, and Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare. Dr. Benjamin and Dr. Roberts, thank you so much for being here. So happy to be here with both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I'll get right into it. Um, I wanted to begin with history. Both of you have been critical voices in calling attention to the deeply rooted presence of racism in what are often seen as objective fields, right? Like science and medicine. This presence has a long horrific history, especially in this country, so to start us off, I'd love to hear a little bit about both of your entry points into writing about these topics. Okay, well, I'll kick it off then. Thank you for that introduction. And thanks so much to Haymarket for hosting this and so many other great programs on abolition and policing. It's really a special thrill to participate in this one with my brilliant friend and comrade, Ruha Benjamin. So knowing that we would begin with stating our personal histories that led us to writing about policing in the context of science and medicine, it made me think back more than I have in the past about what 
was my entry into this topic. And last night I woke up in the middle of the night realizing that I'd written on the topic of policing long before I've ever acknowledged in public. I've actually never spoken about this before. I don't know why it has escaped me for so long, maybe because it was 40 years ago. Uh, I remember that as a third year student in 1979 and 1980 in law school, when I was 23 years old, I wrote my third year thesis on police surveillance. So this morning I went down into the bowels of my basement and I found the paper and it's entitled Wolves in Sheep's Clothing, Uncovering the Role of Police as Political Intelligence Agents. It's submitted in May 1980 in a course on criminal law and administration. Uh, I don't think I've looked at this paper for almost 40 years now. And I just want to read the purpose of the paper, my conclusion really briefly. So I wrote, the purpose of this paper is to present a critical analysis of the function of police in America by focusing on their role as political intelligence agents. At best, intelligence operations have been ineffective and unrelated to the stated objective of preventing crime. Most significantly, the cost of political intelligence, the chilling of lawful political expression, and the destruction of innocent lives far outweigh any possible benefits. And then I wrote the 70-page paper on all the harms caused by police in uh, political surveillance. And I concluded that all the reforms were unrealistic. And I wrote a realistic approach to the problem of domestic political intelligence must acknowledge the institution's function to maintain the present social order through the repression of political dissent. Because of its underlying purpose, because its underlying purpose is repugnant to democratic government and produces such devastating consequences, the institution should be abolished in all its forms. So I think that's probably the first time I ever used abolition in connection with policing when I was 23. Uh, what's fascinating to me rereading those words is that they largely reflect my approach today. If we take a realistic, honest look at the function and outcomes of policing, we have to come to the conclusion that abolition is the only answer to the problem. After I graduated from law school, I practiced in New York City and spent a number of years organizing with and defending a group of people we don't hear much about today, grand jury resistors. Those are people who refuse to testify when subpoenaed before grand juries convene to put political activists in prison. Basically, they refuse to collaborate in policing and prison systems. And I became involved in that struggle when my former husband was detained as a political prisoner in New York City in the early 1980s. So I had, uh, at a young age, an early education by fire about policing in prisons. At the same time, I became interested in reproductive justice. Uh, again, my entry was personal. Midwives were the first reproductive justice activists I knew before the term was coined, and that was because I had my first three babies at home attended exclusively by midwives in 1982, 1984, and 1986. And my midwives were two Puerto Rican sisters in Harlem who were political activists and I had met in my work. And I connected my home births to my awareness of the commercialization of medical practice and injustices in the healthcare system. 
Now, around the same time, I began to be alarmed by the prosecutions of Black women for using crack cocaine while pregnant. And while I left legal practice then to become a professor and my first research project was investigating the policing and criminalization of black mothers for an article challenging the constitutionality of those prosecutions. I realized though that the prosecutions were part of a much broader history of state regulation of black women's childbearing since slavery to the present day. And that policing black mothers was crucial to reproductive and racial politics in America. And I ended up writing Killing the Black Body, which was also foundational to my work with women of color activists to build a movement for reproductive justice that put black women's organizing at the forefront. While working on Killing the Black Body, I became familiar with the so-called child welfare system and discovered that it had an, was an even more widespread system of policing and punishing Black mothers, a system that's designed to terrorize and destroy families in the name of protecting children. And that led to my second book, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, published 20 years ago, almost in 2001. And now around that time, I began reading about scientific studies that were seeking to find race at the genetic level and searching for genetic differences between races. I began to explore the origins of the biological concept of race and think about all its manifestations over the last 400 years. And I wrote my latest book, Fatal Invention, to explain why race was invented and why its resurgence in science, medicine, and biotechnology reinforces structural racism and white supremacy. So what ties all this together? Uh, I'll explain more uh, as we go through the program, but there are all, all these projects are about ways in which biological explanations of the racial order are reinforced by science, medicine, and technology, and they make inequality seem natural rather than the result of unjust power arrangements. Black women's childbearing and parenting in particular have been made the scapegoats for social problems that are caused by structural racism. Policing people who are deemed to be naturally predisposed to bad outcomes is not only a way of justifying controlling them, but also a way to legitimize oppressive systems like police, prisons, and foster care. Wow. Shall I jump in? <laughs> Please. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nisha, for moderating and Haymarket for hosting. And I just want to give some virtual flowers to Dorothy, who has, as you just got a glimpse, sort of blazed this trail in the academy in community activism. And I get to bask in the warmth of that trail that um, she has blazed. I was, I was thinking, ah, I should have dug up a paper too. <laughs> and I was thinking about, uh, first I was thinking in terms of entry points, just growing up in a heavily policed neighborhood gives one a, a, gives one a sort of in, insight and a kind of uh, side eye already <laughs> to um, questions of policing modernity. When you look at modernity from its underside, it gives you a particular insight and way of knowing the world that I, has been valuable to me um, 
And so in terms of scholarly entry points, um, for me, it really started in undergrad at Spelman, where um, I was looking and comparing um, medicine, obstetrics in particular, and the, the sort of policing of childbirth um, there. And I was heavily influenced at that time by Dorothy's work in Killing the Black Body. And I'm really thinking about the relationship between authoritative forms of knowledge, how they're institutionalized, and not just who's harmed by that, but one who's benefiting as a sort of theme in terms of what is produced by oppressive systems. And then I was comparing obstetrics to Black midwives in Georgia, where then and even now the practice of lay midwives is outlawed. And so thinking about always when we have these oppressive systems, the forms of resistance and creative um, reimagining that's always there. And so excavating that and bringing that to light as part of the story. And I think how it connects to our conversation today is that um, the flesh and blood police and the institution of policing is only one of many places that policing happens in our society. And so part of the, the motivation, I think, behind our conversation is to identify and to understand the broader landscape of policing, because if we too narrowly focus on one institution and one set of practices where spectacular forms of violence are, are obvious, then we're going to miss a whole slew of other sites and logics and and tools that allow policing to continue. And so for me, bringing medicine into that is important because medicine is like the do-gooding profession, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we think about policing on one end, medicine has a long history of racial violence embedded, <laughs> embedded in it from its origins. And so what that tells us is if we find it there, then we should expect to find it everywhere if it's in this do-gooding profession which led me then from um, my undergrad thesis at Spelman, I was trying to jot down the title when Dorothy brought her paper up. It was, it was a classic sort of undergrad title. It was a moment of conception, race, <laughs> racism, patriarchy, and capitalism converge in the uterus. That was it. <laughs> and so it was like no subtlety. <laughs> and I love it. So, so then I went from Spelman to looking at biotechnologies and looking at some of these questions. And I think, again, what, what um, motivates me is to question things that we're not supposed to question. And so if we think about science in a bubble or technology as sort of hovering above society, then everyday people don't feel like you have the right or the power to question it, even though it's impacting your life. If you don't have some credential or some specific expertise, you are somehow barred from raising questions about it. But your expertise is your experience with that technology or with that medicine. That is a kind of knowledge that we have to give voice to. And so my first book was around biotechnologies, it was looking at stem cell research, and then most recently, bringing the, those, those questions of power and inequality to bear on the, the emerging technologies around data sciences, algorithmic discrimination, automated decision systems. And again, it's, it's really thinking about how racism and other for, systems of oppression are productive. That is, it's not simply who is harmed, but who's benefiting, not only financially, but in many other ways, from the maintenance of these oppressive systems. It's about thinking about the relationship between race and technology in particular, 
Um, you know, we're more and more primed to think about the social and ethical impact of technology, who it's affecting, but we need to look at the inputs, who's producing it, with what logics, with what values and worldviews. So we need to tell that part of the story too. And then the last thing, again, thinking about the black midwives in my uh, early part of my work in Dorothy's as well, is really understanding that imagination is a terrain of struggle, whose imagination reigns. One way to understand the inequalities and injustices we see is that many people are forced to live inside someone else's imagination. And so when we think about the digital world that's being crafted for us, the physical sort of spatialization of race and inequality, that is the materialization of someone's imagination, someone's imagination. And part of democratizing and resisting the imposition of that imagination is also cultivating our own counter-imaginaries, a more liberatory imagination. And so imagination is not like an afterthought. It's not a luxury. It's not something just for the privileged it is a terrain of action, and we have to begin to actually struggle and and work towards materializing a, a world in which we can all thrive. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you both so much. I love that. Um, I think that really you both hit on a lot of points that I'd love to sort of draw out um, different threads. I guess just, you know, on the carceral system, um, I want to talk about what role technology plays when it comes to law enforcement um, and, you know, kind of what are some of the parts of this system that we're not seeing. We're seeing the brutal um, and violent work of this system all the time, but kind of what's going on um, behind that. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the places we might not be as familiar with may not be seeing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, Ruha brought up this contrast between medicine and uh, law enforcement or the police. And uh, I, th I think it's very interesting to think about how racism is built into predictive tools in different ways in both those domains. So we can think about racism in predictive algorithms in policing across multiple systems. And in fact, one way to think about how widespread policing is and how it takes so many different forms is to think about the role of prediction in all of these different institutions. And it helps you see that they're all about policing people. They're, they're not about helping people, even systems like the child welfare system or the healthcare system that are supposed to be benevolent and supportive are actually designed to police and punish people for the reasons Ruha was saying, who in whose hands are they? Who, who, who's imagining the world that these systems are supposed to facilitate? Uh, it's actually a world that is static uh, or it becomes more oppressive. But the point of it is to keep the status quo, not to allow imagination of something uh, more equal and humane. There is a way in which these predictive algorithms thwart 
imagination for social change because they embed within them existing inequalities. So whether we're talking about predictive algorithms in uh, the police department or in family regulation or education, public assistance programs, medicine, race gets embedded in a way that maintains the current racial order. And it's not so much how the technologies themselves operate. It's their common purpose to facilitate policing marginalized people in order to do lots of different things, deny them benefits, uh, keep them away from resources, keep resources out of their hands, deny them care, deny them freedom, funneling them into prisons and detention centers. So in medicine, diagnostic algorithms explicitly use race to adjust their outputs because it's seen as acceptable to treat race as a biological trait in medicine. Uh, Now, in law enforcement, it happens in a different way. Racism gets built into the algorithms without any explicit mention of race as the factor. And so uh, there's uh, all all these different ways that happens, uh, but what's critical, and this is something that uh, Virginia Eubanks points out in her uh, book on uh, algorithms in public assistance programs, and maybe somebody can help me. I'm blanking on the name. I know automating inequality. Automating inequality. Thank you. I I reviewed the book favorably. I love the book, but it's uh, <laughs> just remembering all these things. But she points out that uh, in the past, uh, the 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 risky individuals were watched, like they were identified and then watched. That was the form of surveillance. But new database surveillance. Uh, the target emerges from the data. And uh, so the people who are targeted are people who are already have been treated unequally. And so their inequality is embedded in the data already. The data is already structured to maintain their inequality. Uh, And so state agencies uh, ability to apply sophisticated analytical tools to massive amounts of data collected through sweeping surveillance has radically transformed the very nature of prediction so that prediction today is even more than it was in the past a way of maintaining a racist social order. Uh, so now uh, reliance on these big data analytics is critical to the expansion of the carceral, carceral regime because the state's aim is to control populations rather than to actually adjudicate individual guilt or innocence. It's managing social inequalities, not aiding people who are suffering from social inequalities. And so risk assessment is no longer about uh, actually determining whether an individual is going to do something. It's about whether the individual belongs to a population that the state wants to manage. And so that's why you get some of these law enforcement databases and algorithms that are already predicting that toddlers are going to be gang members. 
Uh, you know, they, they haven't done anything to be a risk to anybody, but it's not their individual characteristics. It's that they're in a population that needs to be managed. And that's what the prediction is all about. Uh, also, uh, big data and predictive algorithms facilitate the carceral uh, state's mission in new ways. But I want to point out, and this goes back to uh, some of what I was saying in my introductory comments, that racism has always been about predicting, uh, about making certain racial groups seem as if they are predisposed to do bad things and therefore justify controlling them. So race itself is a form of state categorization that ranks people by supposedly innate traits that are claimed to predict their behavior and their character. And so these stereotypes are then justify, help to justify or excuse or rationalize state control of whole groups of people based on their race. Uh, and so that's just some of the ways in which prediction operates across multiple institutions to make race seem as if it itself is a predictive factor so that it can be the basis of state control, uh, state intervention, state violence. All of these algorithmic tools are based on the racist ideology that black race itself is a risk, whether we're talking about the risk of disease or the risk of criminality. It, it cuts across all of these seemingly very disparate domains that are tied together by this notion of prediction that just embeds and reinforces a current state of inequality. Thank you so much for that. I mean, I, I want to bring in um, Dr. Benjamin as well to talk about some of the things that you mentioned and also just kind of maybe um, giving us uh, like zeroing in on some of these technologies and, you know, what and giving us, um, you know, some more uh, on that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can't um, emphasize the point Dorothy made enough, the idea that even before you get to the hardware and software technology, understanding race as a kind of predictive technology that has historically been used to control and subordinate means that it, it doesn't matter if you don't understand the intricacies of some new high tech thing. You can understand through your lived experience of being profiled and predicted against yeah. what the stakes are in this conversation. With that, I really also want us to, with this idea of the new Jim Code, um, understand that innovation goes hand in hand with containment, that oftentimes we conflate innovation in terms of technology with social progress, but we have so much evidence to counter that conflation, that we should understand that it just as well produces new forms of containment. And by using this idea of the new Jim Code, it's renaming the reality from the perspective of those who are harmed by all of these fancy new developments, right? We have to think about the marketing of one tool after another and the promises embedded in even the names of these things. They 
um, they really hide the reality from those who are who are harmed. And so the new Jim Code is a way of understanding the power of naming and naming things from the perspective that one experiences it. And so with that, I want us, and again, think about the conversation last week was so crucial, how they laid out how reforms reproduce oppression, each mm-hmm. new reform, because we're not really getting to the heart of it. We're creating some new tweak and fix that doesn't tackle exactly what Dorothy articulated. And so if we think about the history of this, the technology, the use of new tools and technologies, that has always been part of the arsenal of oppression. And I think here about my colleague Simone Brown's work, sort of laying out that social history. And one of the kind of old school technologies were lanterns and New York City having lantern laws that forced black people to carry around lanterns so they could be easily identified after dark. That's like part of the genealogy of facial recognition systems now, right? But using the lantern. And so tools, that was a technology of identification and racialization that goes back pretty pretty far. And so check, check out Simone's work and understand that there's a spectrum from the most obvious forms of the new Jim Code, the things that we can sort of see are obviously harmful, to the more insidious, the stuff that comes at us promised and wrapped in progress with all of the bells and whistles of benevolence and fixing social problems. And so we want to understand it on a spectrum that it's not just the most harmful ones that we should really care about, whether we're talking about those recommendation systems when, you know, when you open Netflix over the last few weeks, you all have probably noticed all the black movies being recommended to you on Netflix in this moment. So that's, you know, that's a predictive, you know, recommendation system that's based on the data that you it's collecting on you, which seems not just harmless, but kind of beneficial. Like you're glad you don't have to wade through all of the movies ever. And you can sort of have these more targeted experiences but what that means is that in the same way that you can be included and, and seen by this technology, you can be excluded. So targeted marketing allows people who are selling goods and services or advertising to exclude certain demographics. We've seen that with housing ads on Facebook and other social media that say, I don't want elderly people to see this. I don't want black and Latinx people to see this. And so there are now some class action lawsuits against housing developers that have used that targeted advertising to exclude. So you don't have a whites only sign up anymore that's so obvious. Now it's through the back door of technology and marketing. We've heard a lot over the last few weeks about facial recognition, but there's also gait recognition, how you walk. There's emotion recognition. Every single biometric detail that could be an object of analysis is being used in that way. And so We shouldn't just focus on facial recognition, however important that is. And there have been some wins in the last few weeks in terms of um, uh, the the stoppage of those kind of systems, which we can talk about in just a minute. I'll just provide a really quick um, concrete example of how this can go sideways very easily. Um, One of the first schools to announce that it was going to automate it's vetting of people when you walk onto campus, a, a facial recognition system that would tell the, tell the campus authorities whether you belonged or not, whether you're definitely a student or staff or faculty. UCLA was about to roll this out. 
And um, a, a, a nonprofit called Fight for the Future did a kind of audit on this on the recognition system produced by Amazon, and it used 400 photos of um, publicly available photos of um, members of the UCLA campus community, and found that it got back 58 false positive matches that linked students to people with criminal records, and the vast majority of those matches were people of color. So now imagine being um, that being triggered, you being a student or faculty, campus police being called, LAPD being called, and the kind of domino effect, all based on this supposedly neutral system. And so the last um, point I want to really emphasize is that this is not just a top-down process. This is not just big institutions adopting um, systems that are sort of out of our reach. Um, it's also about how we use everyday apps and technologies. And we think about things like the citizen app, various neighborhood watch um, groups and apps. So we want to think about how we are implicated it as deputies of the police, how we perpetuate policing. Rather than just focusing on the institution, how do we internalize the logics that th these things actually make us safer? And so we want to sort of identify our responsibility and role in this and in the process begin to think about and imagine other alternatives that actually would make us more um, make us safer and have a more cohesive um, sort of community and society that we would like to live in. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot in there that I also want to want to pull out. Um, but I guess before we get into some more of this um, about some of these technologies, I wanted to dwell on this intersection around healthcare. Um, the question of racism in medicine, you know, maybe coming like from doctors versus the question of racism in technology in the healthcare industry. Um, and so I wanted to hear both of your takes on that intersection. Um, Dorothy, you want to? Sure. So I think when we think about the way in which race gets embedded in medicine and, and science more broadly, as if it were a biological trait, you know, it as if it were a natural risk factor, we have to go back to the very invention of race. I, I, I found as I've worked on this, it's helpful to not just call race a social construction because people will say, well, it's a biological category that's socially constructed, but to really emphasize that it was invented, you know, and, and it keeps getting reinvented. So it was invented during the Enlightenment age largely by scientists, by European scientists who started to classify human beings based on a racial hierarchy that they wanted to say was natural, but it was in order to justify European dispossession of indigenous people and enslavement of African people. And that, you know, when, as Rua was talking about innovation, if we think about all the innovations that have gone on in medicine from the Enlightenment age to today, there have been lots of them, but they have held on to this basic, actually pre-modern concept that some natural force divided all human beings into races and that science can predict all sorts of things about people based on their race. Uh, and so the Enlightenment itself 
was an innovation of theological thinking that God created the races. So they, you know, instead they say, oh, nature created the races. Uh, today, scientists are saying evolution created the races. Those are all innovations of the same concept. All they've done is reinforce this idea by saying, well, now we're, we've got more enlightened, more advanced technologies to prove it. So in the 1800s, Samuel Morton proved this racial hierarchy, he said, by the advanced technology of craniometry. And he collected a thousand skulls from all over the world and measured the volume and said, oh, well, this proves that white people have the largest skulls, so there must be this, the most intelligent. Black people have the smallest, they're the most ignorant. Uh, today, neuroimaging you know, can look at this, the brains of children who grew up in poverty and claim that the reason they can't escape poverty is because their brains have been physically damaged by the effects of poverty or sociogenomics claiming that uh, that genes can predict things like educational attainment now more accurately and precisely because of big DNA databases and uh, computerized uh, and analysis but it's still the same basic idea that's dressed up with new technology. And also jumping off of Ruha's a really important uh, point about benevolence hiding oppression. This is what medicine does so perfectly because, and then scientists latch on to that. So they just say, well, we're doing this racial research to improve minority health, or we're uh, treating patients by race in order to uh, in order to make sure that the peculiarities of their diseases uh, are attended to, that we give the right diagnosis, that we give the right treatment. Well, that is embedded into medical technology through something that's called race correction. As I said before, they don't hide it <laughs> because in medicine, it's supposed to be for benevolent altruistic reasons. So because of uh, their good intentions, they're supposed to be uh, exempt from any scrutiny about how they're using race. So race correction actually is embedded into all sorts of clinical calculators that automatically adjust the output by race. So for example, uh, risk assessment tools for cardiovascular disease, for breast cancer, for bone fractures, or for vaginal births after cesarean, uh, something both Ruha and I talked about, uh, reproductive health and birthing. Uh, these technologies for tests for function, for hypertension, they all import race as an automatic adjustment. And it's mainly so that black patients are treated differently. And in every case, they steer medical care away from black patients. So I'll just talk briefly about one, just to give you an idea of how embedded this is and how harmful it is and how it's based on a racist ideology that doctors don't want to see. And that's something called uh, glomerular filtration rate or the, the estimate for uh, this really important indicator of kidney function. And it's automatically adjusted upward for black patients. Automatic, any black patient, whatever this protein is in the blood, whatever that amount is, if it's a black patient or an African-American patient, 
it's adjusted up with any other human being, it's a different number. And this has serious implications because the higher the estimate, the less likely you will be referred for specialty care and the more likely you'll be ineligible to be waitlisted for a kidney transplant. So there are these concrete harms to black patients and I could go on with harms for every single one of them. That's just one example that uh, are, are a result of this technology that embeds within it the belief that race is a biological trait and that black people have bodies that are peculiar and different from any other human beings. So uh, anti-racism in medicine uh, requires more than just weeding out bias in the minds of individual physicians. It also requires abolishing these ways in which medicine is structured to promote racist ideas, policies, and practices. And again, I'll emphasize in medicine, and we could talk about this across the board with these predictive analytics, it's racism, not race, that puts Black people at risk. And what I think is so crucial about what you shared, Dorothy, and this intersection of technology and medicine is oftentimes technology is invoked as the antidote for dealing with human bias and prejudice. So it's, it, it grows again. It's like a reform, right? It grows out of an acknowledgement that, you know, we know the, this racism exists. We know, for example, that medical students think that black people feel less pain than white mm -hmm. white people. Mm -hmm. So you get a study like that that demonstrates that. And then for many people, the go-to fix is let's find a technology that yeah. can do it because it will be less biased. <laughs> Not understanding that someone had to create that. There was data that had to be fed that to teach any kind of automated system how to make a decision. And so just last fall, some colleagues of mine actually did a study on this healthcare algorithm that affects millions of patients around the country. It's basically like a digital triaging system that's trying to identify patients that are predicted to be higher, le more likely to get sick in the near term. So the idea is let's, let's identify them so we can give them more attention and resources now um, so that they don't get sick, to keep them out of the hospital. So it's digital triaging. And what my colleagues found, Obermeyer um, and, 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 and his team, is that the, the racial bias in the medical algorithm favored white patients over sicker black patients. And so it was this idea that those who designed the algorithm used this idea of cost how much we spent on people in the past as a way to predict how much they would need in the future. But we don't, we don't spend based on need. <laughs> and so whether it's our insurance structure, whether it's everyday racism in the healthcare system, people who need it are often not getting the resources. So if you're using that cost metric in order to predict the future, then you are essentially reproducing those health disparities that have existed in the past. But the danger now is that it's hidden behind a veneer of neutrality. So you can't point to the racist doctor or nurse who's denying care. You're looking at a computer screen that says, you don't, you don't measure up, you don't get this particular, um, out, this outpatient treatment. And so what does that mean in the context of the pandemic? Many healthcare uh, organizations are using algorithms of all sorts, more old school types of algorithms, or to more uh, automated, uh, you know, advanced types. 
And with these, we know that, for example, if it, the basis of that algorithm is designed, which many are, for example, to decide who it, who's going to get a ventilator or not. And if that algorithm is designed to ensure that the person who gets the uh, uh, ventilator is someone who's more likely to survive by giving them the ventilator. So you're using the person who is healthier and more likely to survive. And you're building that understanding into this algorithm. So it's essentially automating eugenics. It's both, it's ableist, it's racist, it's classist. So wealthier, whiter, abled patients are more likely to get that scarce resource. And so we have to be very aware now more than ever that when we are automated, automating decisions and those decisions are predicated on the unthinking value of some kinds of people over others, we're essentially reproducing very dangerous status quo, in this case, a eugenic understanding of who deserves care and not. And so we have to understand that this is really, um, the stakes are even higher now. Absolutely. And I want to go back to this idea of techno benevolence, which I think is very important. And I want to um, get both of your, you know, more thoughts on that. And also particularly to talk a little bit about the family regulation system, as you've called it, Dr. Roberts. Um, so both, you know, thinking about that idea of techno benevolence, but also how that's kind of intersecting with the carceral system. Yeah. You want to, you want to jump in? I, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I just have to say something though, Ruha, about what you were just talking about ventilators, because I just finished working on an article with, um, a nephrologist, a pen and a bioethicist on that question, because you're absolutely right in guidelines that are already being used in other contexts. Uh, the the idea is that it's more efficient, it's more you know utilitarian to uh, give the scarce ventilators to people who are more likely to survive, and the way in which they measure that or determine that is an algorithm that puts in these factors that systematically disadvantage black patients. And in working on it, though. I had I had to keep emphasizing that it's not just the technology. It's not even just the factors that are going into. It's the very value of, number one, thinking that utility and equity are opposing and we have to choose one or the other and utility should win. Right. And then even thinking, what is utility? Why isn't a more just society uh, a, a benefit for everybody. It is actually. But so often our arguments about social justice, especially in the sphere of medicine and science, get seen as just pure ideology that's not important because we have to deal with the more important questions of utility and uh, facts and reality, as if science isn't from the very beginning totally seeped in these value judgments. 
everything we've been talking about is a value judgment, is an ideology that science is following. And it's so infuriating. (laughs) I say, oh, well, that's social justice. You're just talking about ideology, you sociologist. We don't have to listen to you. (laughs) But to get back to uh, the the question I should be answering, (laughs) I want to, in talking about the family regulation system, which is, you know, I didn't coin that term, but I think it's a very helpful term to replace child welfare or child protection uh, or even foster care with to, to understand that these systems are not designed at all to care for anybody, to protect anybody uh, or for anyone's welfare. And they are designed to police and regulate and punish. I think family destruction system would also be a good term for it. And uh, I, I want to just for a moment, I have a tendency to do this, is go back and look at the origins of these ideas. And I mean, I could talk for a long time about the origins of the so-called child welfare system in the United States, but I want to point out just one aspect of the origin of policing Black mothers in particular, because Black mothers and also Indigenous mothers are at the most risk of having their children taken away from them by the system. And I think it's important to note the ideological foundations of uh, the 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 state policing of black mothers. So one law that I think shows this so clearly and also shows the invention of race is one of the very first laws in the colonies passed in 1662 in Virginia that gave children born to enslaved black women who were raped by white men the status of their mothers so that the children also could be enslaved. A lot of people, you know, say, well, of course that would happen, but they could have also been given the status of white people since their fathers were white. Uh, We're so used to now the idea that, of of course, those are black children. Of course, they would have the status of black children. So but it was a law that created this idea that black women gave birth to enslavable children even if their fathers were white. And I think that that law casts black women's wombs as the producers of their children's subjugated condition. And that ideology still supports race policies and institutions today. So politicians and researchers and the media have treated black women's childbearing as an urgent social problem that has to be fixed in all the ways Ruha's talked about fixing uh, social problems. Uh, So they routinely circulate these stereotypes about black maternal irresponsibility to support all sorts of policies, birth control policies, welfare reform policies, foster care policies, law enforcement policies that are all designed to police and punish black women's childbearing and child raising. Uh, And I mentioned as as one of the very first issues I, I wrote about and was uh, active around were the prosecutions of black mothers being charged with fetal crimes uh, and the way that child welfare authorities took newborns from thousands and thousands of black women because they tested positive uh, for drugs. 
uh, the images of the mythical black welfare queen that were so powerful that they fueled Congress's abolition of the entitlement to welfare, uh, allowing states now to pass laws that are deliberately aimed at deterring women receiving public assistance from having more babies. And all of these policies pretend that it's black mothers who are the cause of what's actually structural inequalities. And that's what's at the heart of the family destruction system. It's blaming parents, mostly uh, single mothers living in poor neighborhoods, uh, for not being able to care for their children instead of dealing with, addressing, and, and, and ending the structural inequalities that are actually what's harming their children. Uh, and there is, uh, I think, again, it goes to the, the idea of benevolence, this failure to understand that this system is an integral part of the U.S. carceral regime, I think because many people still think that it's somehow uh, a system that helps children and families in some way, even if it's terrible, it's better than where the children came from. But in fact, regulating and destroying black, brown and indigenous families in the name of child protection has been essential to the white supremacist nation uh, from its very, uh, very origins as much as prisons and police have been. Uh, like the prison industrial complex, the foster industrial complex is a multi-billion dollar government apparatus that regulates millions of marginalized people through the most intrusive investigations, you know, with someone knocking on your door, sometimes accompanied by police and taking your children away from you, then monitoring families, uh, forcibly keeping them in uh, foster care or group homes or what's called therapeutic detention centers where recently black teenagers have been killed. Uh, and the vast majority of these investigations, and by the way, half over half of black children are subjected to these investigations, involve allegations of neglect related to poverty. Uh, black families and indigenous families are, as I said, are targeted the most for this disruption. And just as police don't make communities safe, Child Protective Services affirmatively harms children and their families and doesn't address the structural causes for their hardships or meet their needs. Residents of Black neighborhoods live in fear of state agents entering their homes, interrogating them, and taking their children as much as they fear police harassing them in the streets. And I just want to say one more thing, because Ruha said, let's not be deputies of the police. Uh, the the um, a child welfare system and mandatory reporting make people deputies of these state agents, mandate them uh, under penalty of law to turn people in if they suspect that their parents are maltreating the children uh, so that the children now get sucked up and the whole family sucked up into the system. So uh, we, we really need to rethink what is supposed to be a benevolent system and the ways in which it props up all these other aspects of the carceral system as well. 
And and one other thing I was I was thinking about Dorothy connecting to last week's conversation is how what you just outlined is not a call to ignore harms that are done. It's no. about completely tr- coming up with a new paradigm in which to address those harms. Exactly. Um, and understand the origins of them as not the or uh, as not the sort of origin of individual deviance and mm-hmm. malevolence, but to understand what produces it in a much broader sense. So it's a more accurate diagnosis <laughs> so that we can actually offer a, um, a, a more, you know, a, a something that actually works. And so that requires changing the paradigm. Yeah. So the, the quickly, I'll just say, you know, um, Nisha, you asked me about techno benevolence and so adding to the conversation about benevolence, where does technology fall in? Again, I think we have two main stories that we're taught about technology that we then continue to reproduce. And we need to sort of, um, again, come up with a new story, a new paradigm in which to understand our relationship with technology. The one story is that technology is going to save us. That's the kind of techno utopian version that Silicon Valley produces day in and day out. There's the story that technology is going to slay us, that it's going to take all the jobs. It's the source of all evil. It's the Terminator story. Hollywood loves to tell us that story. And although on the surface, these seem like opposing stories, one is a helpful, one is harmful in terms of technology. They share an underlying logic, which is technology is in the driver's seat. We're just affected by it, right? Mm -hmm. We're either harmed or helped. But we need to push those two stories to the side and actually look at what's happening behind the screen, that the technology that we have is the product of human agency. Nevertheless, there are people working overtime to sell us the idea that the technology that we have is inevitable. And we just have to either live with it or find ways to tweak the edges, but that we can't demand a fundamentally different set of tools that actually are life affirming and create a more habitable world. And so together, we have to begin to articulate more than just one alternative, but a myriad other stories that are putting the power analysis back into it, the agency of people back into it, and to recognize that right now, only a small sliver of humanity is imagining and materializing the world that they want. And the rest of us are living in that. And so what we are talking about is a much more democratic, participatory, a fundamentally different way of understanding technology that it can't be um, produced by these constant, this concentrated wealth and power, the kind of Silicon Six, as my colleague Sophia Noble has recently written about, which avoids up to, what is it, 155 million billion dollars worth of taxes between 2010 and 2019. Meanwhile, we're told they're helping us, but they're avoiding actually investing in the public good (laughs) systematically. And so this, I think when we hear benevolence and the kind of the technology is going to save us, we need to look at the facts and the fact that the people producing it, the companies producing it are avoiding actually the responsibility of Um, sustaining and investing in the public good. And so when it comes to public health and COVID, this has actually, um, you know, created uh, a context in which the same um, purveyors of anti-democratic tools, these purveyors of disinformation, these um, producers of discriminatory um, systems 
are now jumping in to tell us they're going to save us from both the pandemic and from police violence through apps, through contact tracing, through all of the rest. And they don't have the track record to back that up. And so we need to look to something fundamentally different as what is actually going to be the source of our health and well-being rather than actually look for tech fixes, tech fixes to get us out of this. Yeah, so I wanted to ask another question kind of along the lines of where you were heading there. We do have a number of really excellent audience questions that I want to get to very soon. So, um, but before, so I'll, I'll ask this before we get there, but, um, so given the moment we're in the pandemic, um, the fact that, you know, we're using technology, um, much more than, I mean, many of us are using technology much more than we normally would. And we know that, you know, these technologies are made by people who are, you know, in some cases, you know, in, like actively doing harm in the search of profit. Um, they're plagued by bias in, in, on many sort of levels. And so I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, in this specific context, like some strategies for pushing back on that, for some strategies for how we both kind of exist in this moment. Um, knowing that, you know, technology looms so large as a part of our lives, but also we're pushing back um, at the same time, or what are, what are some strategies that we can kind of um, do that, or at least question um, the technologies that we're using? Shall I jump in? Okay. Yeah. So I think um, one way to begin that again, that's a, that's a part two kind of conversation. We'll just give you a little taste, but um, it's really thinking that through every tentacle, through every route in which harm is produced, that is also a potential site for thinking about alternatives. So at the individual, at the community level, in terms of the wider body politic, there are three, uh, three, I'll, I'll mention three buckets of things we can be thinking about contributing to. One we've hinted at already in terms of um, the legal and policy context. We can think about it as the ecosystem in which technology is developed. So just tweaking and making and kind of debiasing one tool is really not going to help us, although that may, that may be useful. For example, a few weeks ago, Zoom announced that people who used Zoom for free, that their data could be shared with law enforcement. People who paid, their data would be encrypted and protected. And uh, within a few days, there was such outcry that they reversed that position. And so that's an example of a very specific tool that all of us are using now in which people said, no, uh-uh, <laughs> you know, like there would be mass exit. And so they very quickly re reverse course. So that's that has its place. But we have to think about the larger ecosystem in which we keep seeing profit over people. We keep seeing the exploitation of, of, of data and the, the use of data. And so that whole idea of the policy and legal ecosystem, there's a lot of great things happening that people can plug into. I'm thinking about in New York, there was a win just a couple of weeks ago, the New York City Surveillance Oversight Technology Project Stop. Um, it actually, the, the New York City Council just voted um, for a new um, bill that requires the NYPD to disclose whatever surveillance tools that they're using and create a, an oversight system that this is something that that or, that project was working for for several years but in this climate again mass protest um, works <laughs> in this climate um, the council finally passed this bill 
Um, in, in LA, there's a, a m- amazing organization that people should support and, and, and plug into LAPD stop, um, spine coalition. And one of the things I love about them is their popular education model. Again, this is not just for a f- select few people with degrees or who have the tech know-how. This is, if it affects you and your community, then you get to be involved and you get to have a say. One of the great tools that Stop LAPD's Spine Coalition has developed is a mapping of what they call the stalker state. (laughs) And so hopefully we're gonna add that in the chat here, but it shows you all of the tentacles, all of the ways in which people are surveilled and data is collected. And they're, um, they're developing an updated version that's looking specifically at contact tracing and the data shared across sectors in terms of contact tracing apps. So these are just two places in New York and, and LA, but also in the Midwest, um, you know, there's a lot of great sort of um, community and policy work happening in St. Paul and Minneapolis. Um, in term, a few years ago, there was something called the Innovation Project as public schools and the police joined forces to basically predict at-risk youth in the city. And community orgs galvanized. And within a year, they shut that thing down. And we saw in just in the last few weeks, their success in defunding police and moving resources. And so all across the country and every locale, there's these kind of community policy, legal sort of initiatives happening. There's data for black lives. If you're someone in tech and you want, and and again, rather than thinking that you're going to come up with some new solution, the idea is to plug into the ecosystem, support organizations that have been working on social justice. And Data for Black Lives is a wonderful umbrella organization that allows those collaborations to happen. The last kind of set, the bucket of things you, we can think about contributing and supporting are creative and subversive uses of technology. And so it's not just that we kind of refuse technologies that harm us, but we can create digital tools that are are working for communities, data justice tools. One example that I always uh, invoke is the white collar early warning system, which flips the script and creates a heat map of city blocks where financial crimes are likely to occur. And it even has a facial recognition system based on the LinkedIn profiles of 500 CEOs or something like that. Um, Again, to get us to question, what are the assumptions when we think of crime? Where are we looking? What are we predicting? So it gets us in a very subversive way to begin to question that. And, a, and a, another version of that that's actually helping with housing um, discrimination is the anti-eviction mapping project, which is using digital tools rather than predicting the most vulnerable, whether someone is going to default or not pay their rent or mortgage. It's looking at landlords. It's looking at property owners. So it's taking the digital lens and turning it back on those who actually wield power and authority, and it's mapping in different cities the eviction process, and they're updating that for COVID evictions. And it's not just about giving us the data, but it's actually as an organizing tool for people to have that data to be able to then target various kinds of um, uh, laws and, and things on the ground. And so, again, there's so many buckets. The very last thing I'll say is in terms of education, There's the equitable internet initiatives. They're working in Detroit and New York and other places, building up community power um, to grow digital equity. There's a great case study of this that was just published that people should take a look at and kind of adapt it to their locale. And um, you can take a look at the resources page of my personal website and it offers a lot more. But essentially, 
there's so many different ways to get involved and plug in based on what you're passionate about and where you, where you can get in to fit in. And so everyone has a, has a role to play. So are we, are we uh, kind of wrapping up now? Uh, I'm wondering if I should shift to uh, sort of my closing thoughts or. We have a bit more time and I was going to do some audience questions if that's, if that's okay. Um, But I definitely, you know, I, I can definitely leave some time for closing thoughts as well. Well, I just, well in terms of um, thinking about the family regulation or destruction system and how it relates to uh, some calls to defund the police. I just wanted to make a point about that and make sure I got that out. And I don't know if this is a good time to do yeah, it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so... I, I I have been concerned about, and first of all, let me just say everything that Ruha recommended would also be beneficial to organizing around abolishing the family regulation system. Uh, it, it isn't as um, technologically sophisticated or as uh, longstanding or as organized as some other movements are. And uh, but it's all about creating an, a, a different way of meeting people's needs that 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 doesn't rely on removing children from their homes, putting children in detention centers, locking up uh, adults in prison. And so uh, everything that Ruha mentioned would also be beneficial to the movement to abolish foster care or or family regulation. Uh, But I did want to make a point about the way in which some people have been recommending that in defunding the police, uh, the money be transferred from police to health and human services uh, because health and human services agencies are the ones that handle child protective services. And I think we have to be very careful not to take uh, money and resources and authority from one oppressive institution or system and put it into another one. First of all, police and child protective services work hand in hand. And so you're not really moving it to some separate benevolent system at all. Uh, And uh, also building up the already billions of dollars that are spent on taking children away from their families and putting them in uh, some kind of substitute government custody uh, is not going to benefit anybody. It's not going to achieve what we're working to achieve. So uh, giving welfare child welfare authorities more money and power would only result in even more state surveillance and control of black and indigenous communities. Uh, And so there's uh, a small but growing movement to radically transform or abolish the family regulation system. Uh, It's been ignited by black mothers who've been separated from their children. Uh, joined by former foster youth, social justice activists, legal services providers, nonprofit organizations, and scholars. Uh, I do want to contrast that from 
uh, libertarian calls to keep the government out of families. And this goes to Ruha's point that this isn't a movement to ignore uh, harms or harm, hardships to children. It's a movement to deal with them in a way that actually makes families safe and provides for their needs. Uh, the libertarians don't want that to happen. They just want government out, but they're not thinking about uh, an, a radically different kind of society that supports families. So our goal isn't just to dismantle the current system. It's to imagine and create better ways of caring for children and meeting families' needs and preventing domestic violence. Uh, so like demands to defund the police, foster care abolition includes diverting the billions of dollars spent on separating children from their families to cash assistance, healthcare, housing, other material supports provided directly and non-coercively to families uh, who need them. Uh, and so uh, again, the kinds of networks and uh, movements that we see happening in uh, the, the movement to abolish the prison industrial complex are very much in tune and 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 uh, uh, collaborate and uh, cooperate with. Uh, they have we have the same mission. Uh, I, I don't know if it's at a point where it's it's hard to say is it the same movement, but at least I would say that is there's the same vision to. Uh, collectively build a new society that supports rather than destroys families and communities. And I would uh, hold up as two organizations that are doing great work in this area that people should connect with. One is Movement for Family Power uh, that just issued a really important report on how the war on drugs is connected to this. And also the National Coalition for Child Protection Reform, which collects a lot of really useful information and connects people who are working in this area. So uh, I, 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 I hope that uh, if people want to know more about this movement, they will look to those two sources. Thank you so much for bringing that up because I think I think that there is this really important question about kind of you know reforms that actually sort of you know appear on the surface to be reforms but actually exacer exacerbate the very problems that and the very things that we're trying to dismantle are then sort of rebuilt um, elsewhere mm -hmm. and so um, I guess I I did want to just linger on that for for one second if um, you know if either of you had anything else to say about kind of other um, other examples where that may be the case, you know, reforms that are posing as reforms, but aren't, <laughs> you know, or, or are sort of keeping us within the same paradigm and the same, you know, sort of oppressive framework without. Yeah. You know. I think a lot of the, the, the examples um, that we pointed to in terms of tech mediated Fixes, but also when we think um, about the protest chant, like no money for police, money for schools, but schools are another site of, 
of carcerality. You know, we think about the fact that the school resource officers, the school police, in many places are funded by the school of education, I mean, by the Department of Education. So you take money from police, you give more to the Department of Education, there's nothing preventing them from hiring more school police. And so again, if all of these institutions are infected with this, this carceral imagination and these tools for imposing social and racial control, that means that it's not just about shifting money around, it's about completely upending the foundations and reimagining. So of course we want education. Of course we want healthcare. Of course we want families. Um, and so part of what we need to do as, um, as collectives and as a movement is to devote as much energy into seeding those alternatives as we do in terms of critiquing the status quo. Not just imagining them, but experimenting with them. And in many ways, what we're seeing as the proliferation of mutual aid groups around the world, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, those are experiments with mutuality, with solidarity, with completely reanalyzing the source of harm and therefore the source of um, life-affirming practices. And so we are actually building worlds right now. We're experimenting with alternatives through these many ways of mutuality. And, and many of them don't require some new fancy tech fix, right? <laughs> that's, that, that's part of it, is that um, what will be the new paradigm isn't what we're promised the new shiny thing is going to be. Many times what's new is going back to some of our roots as well in terms of mutuality. Mutual aid wasn't invented in the last 10 or 100 years. It's something that is grounded in indigenous communities, mm -hmm. in uh, communities all over the world that has been smothered by a capitalist paradigm, by a racist white supremacist paradigm. And so partly what's new is actually allowing what has been there to flourish again. <laughs> and, and so again, let's think about not discounting these small, again, in quotes, experiments, right? Um, and not waiting for some just top-down fix. The, the big ecosystem policy law stuff, that's important. But mm -hmm. there's stuff that we could do yesterday mm -hmm. that be could begin to grow and seed the world that we want that I think even in our own imagination, we think we, we put a just in front of it. It's just this little thing. It's just me and my friends doing X, Y, and Z. And so partly what it takes is to um, peel that out of our own thinking and not discount what it means to build worlds, these small worlds in which they're based on a different set of values, right? They're based on a different way of seeing one another. It's a, a different way of understanding what makes, what is power, <laughs> you know? We are, we are fed a very particular um, notion of power and therefore we reject it. But then what is, what other forms of empowerment and power are we cultivating? What is wealth? <laughs> it, it, do we only associate with wealth with certain things? And so we have to redefine. It's like starting everything anew. <laughs> and this is the time to do it. We have to rethink all of our starting categories and our starting principles to ensure that whatever we create is not infected with these, with these ways that continue to be reproduced again and again, because we create a veneer of change without actually looking at what is inside. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, 
I think that's, that's an incredible point. And, um, to just to, to bring in a couple of, um, audience questions. So there's a number of different threads. I'm going to try and kind of like bring them into one question. We'll see how that goes. Do it, do it. Um, <laughs> so there's a couple diff- from a couple different kind of fields. People are wondering how to sort of operate from an abolitionist framework or, you know, so we have on the one hand, we have STEM fields, um, in this case, specifically STEM fields that don't directly contribute to tech. So like chemistry or physics, um, how to be in that field and how to, you know, do research and ensure that, um, your work is not reproducing these kinds of, um, ideologies. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, you know, workers in tech, um, thinking about, and I know you both have already pointed to some really great organizations and some great resources. Um, but I just kind of wanted to draw this out a little bit, um, in terms of, you know, what folks who are watching who may be in those particular industries can, uh, can think about and do in their work. Mm-hmm. Well, I could start with, uh, maybe a different kind of industry that I'm most familiar with, and that's uh, biomedical research. I get the question a lot, which is very similar to this question from biomedical researchers or medical students also who are being trained by people who believe in the biological concept of race and think that it's essential to doing medicine or to understanding human bodies. You you can't, you know, there's so many people that you could possibly do that without dividing people into biological races and predicting everything about them that's relevant to the study or to the disease based on their race. And uh, what can medical students or uh, uh, postdocs, you know, in a in a genomics lab or something like that, you know, what can they do? Sometimes they're also confused about how do we deal with race, you know, because we're being taught all, all we know is this biological concept, and I think that one one thing that is important is to keep in mind that race is invented and reinvented and to think about how it's being used in any particular context. Is it being treated as if it were a biological natural category or is it being used for what it is? You know, a system of governing people that has uh, always been promoted in a hierarchical fashion by uh, dominant science and and people in power. Uh, Also to realize that you can't do this on your own. You have to uh, have solidarity with other students, other postdocs, you know, try to find uh, people. Again, I'm thinking in the academic context, uh, it's different in the corporate world, but there are always going to be people who are higher ups, you know, who have more authority that you can work with. I'll, I'll just give the example of race correction now, where there are now about four or five hospitals that have ended it. And in every case, it's because of students or organizing uh, to end it. And in the context of an anti-racism uh, demands for a new kind of education about race, uh, 
uh, and racism, one that takes into account structural racism and doesn't rely on these biological concepts. And they have won so many exciting victories lately. Uh, it can be done. Uh, sometimes you have to form a group outside of the structure that you're working in, you know, whether it's a working group or an, a more of an activist group. Uh, that's important as well. But it, it can be done and it has to be done because if, it, if we don't change the way in which all, uh, these paradigms are being reproduced by people who haven't bought into them yet, you know, we're, we're, there's no hope, but there is hope in people who the students, the um you know, I don't want to say it's all just young people and older people are hopeless, you know, but uh, I found it's the students, it's the people coming in who are willing to change the very values, uh, structures and paradigms that can make a change. Absolutely. To that, I would add, you know, for anyone, whether you're in chemistry or whether you're in the tech industry, um, know your history <laughs> um, in terms of you're not the first to be concerned about this. So build on the history of organizing and and muckracking in your in your particular locale. I love the organization, the way that Science for the People excavates that history um, of engineers and technicians going back so long in terms of understanding that they're not just individuals. They're not just with the titles of their profession, but they have a larger responsibility. If you are the first one seeing the development of some harmful thing or the ignoring of some harmful thing, you have a responsibility to actually blow the whistle and to work with others. Also thinking about the relationship between people in various professions and communities that are ultimately mm -hmm. impacted and how to create as part of the ecosystem, the connections between these, you know, these arenas before something hits, shit hits the fan, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I want to recommend um, the Design Justice Network and the Design Justice Principles as one of those guides for people in different sectors to use to think about how to cultivate those relationships way, way, way upstream in any process. And then finally, begin to understand the hierarchies in your own backyard. You know, it's so much easier to see the problem when it's in a distance, but right in your own backyard, if you're in academia, the hierarchies of knowledge in academia that makes it so that people can graduate from STEM fields and have so, have no historical literacy, have no sociological literacy, and yet be producing things that are going to have these watt and sweeping impacts. That hierarchy of knowledge that makes it so that you can think that you're educated and proficient in a particular field without some basic insights from other disciplines, that's built into the structure of what, not, what knowledge is valuable and not. Likewise, when we think about the hierarchies within tech companies, the fact that you know the, you, most of these places have their resident ethicists, they have their resident social <laughs> scientists, but again, who has the last say? Who's, who's, whose way of thinking is actually given the most value so that they can dismiss. You can have all of the disciplinary diversity you want in the world. You can have all of the racial ethnic diversity, but you don't have to listen to shit. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can do what you want to do. Yeah. And so that hierarchy of knowledge actually creates 
a, a, an ecosystem that allows these harmful things to continue to be reproduced. So do that homework in your own backyard. Know your history. Know how, a power analysis in your own in your own context. Mm-hmm. Thank you both so much. I feel like I have so many more things to ask you, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, oh. <laughs> I know. I feel like this went so fast. Um, well, so thank you so much, both of you, Dr. Benjamin and Dr. Roberts. This has been just an incredible conversation. You know, like I said, I feel like there's so much more to say. Um, and, you know, just my gratitude to both of you for sharing such critical perspectives and wisdom with us today. Um, before we close, I have a few closing announcements. Um, Thank you to everyone for joining us. Really appreciate um, your great questions and for um, for being here with us. Um, I want to let you know about a couple of events coming up soon. Tomorrow is the struggle for police-free schools and an equitable, safe reopening. That's at six o'clock Eastern time. And then next week we have the end of Zionism, some thoughts and next steps. That's on July 14th at five o'clock Eastern. And then on July 21st, we have decarceration from the U.S. to Palestine. That's at five o'clock Eastern. So feel free to check those out and sign up on Eventbrite if you haven't already. I want to thank Patty again so much for live captioning this event. I want to thank Haymarket Books (laughs) for organizing this live stream. Thank you both so much for joining me. And thank you to everyone who joined this call. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Misha. Thanks, Haymarket. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Ruha. Thanks, Dorothy. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.